yeah, most energy drinks have a lot of garbage in them. So try to find stuff that's not terrible. What are you allergic to in tea and coffee? The mold that grows on it. The that's mold? The same situation I have with wheat. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a gluten problem. I have a mold problem. And, uh, you know, we're in the biggest wheat producing area of the country where I'm at. And uh, they leave the wheat out of these mountains, just out in the open air with rain falling on it and everything. And most folks uh, don't, you know, I don't have seasonal allergies at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, what the good Lord takes gets away with one hand, he gives with the other. And so I don't have any seasonal stuff, but, but any of those three will give me a pretty wicked migraine and my brain kind of stops working. Shit. Well, you, you know, go. I got two working legs, blessed as fuck. <laughs> so you know. Well, I don't drink good, coffee, so it, there's there's no big loss there for me. But tea, I mm. drink the shit out of tea, especially sweet tea. Love me some yeah, sweet tea. I knew you like Tell you're a true southerner if you're drinking sweet tea, man. <laughs> you know it, baby. You know it. Sweet tea's where it's at. Nectar of the gods. <laughs> Nils, I was stoked to see your photo uh, uh, in. Um, Vince uh, Buckles feed the other day and got got to listen to a few minutes of the Voice of the West and uh, yeah that's a bitchin' photograph I really like that shot of you with the twelve gauge. Um, oh, it's a, yeah, it's that's left over from the one of the Avenue murders. No shit. Well, no, I mean not contemporaneous with the murders. When I was working the case back in two thousand. Um, Somebody from uh, LA Weekly came over and photographed me in my office for their cover for their cover story. That is well. Hopefully, we can get into that because I don't know that much about it, but I know the name. And um, what's it called? Yeah, I don't know, uh, Marty. I told Marty that he could just turn on the recorder and we could go to sleep and come back three hours later, and we'd have kind of the best show we'd ever recorded. So uh, you know. It's going to be hard to, to neck it down to the fun stuff to, you know, to, to what there, there's so many different things we could talk about. Marty, you wanted, this was the show where we, are we doing uh AK corner or are we doing no. the man, the myth, the legend? No, we're doing, this is the, this is the normal show, the regular show. Um, okay, cool. So we're going to talk about the man, the myth, the legend. It's all, it's all going to be about you, Nils. We're talking all about you. Uh, I want to talk Excellent. about, uh, your background, you know, your history, your military, your uh, obviously your private investigation um, stories that you've got to tell about those, some of the the bigger cases that you've been a part of, your books. I want to talk about the author side, um, just what you got going on, and then it's just kind of fly by the seat of your pants with this show. As you start talking, I'll probably have questions. Brian will have questions, and it'll go where it goes. Okay, so so where are you from in Tennessee, man? So I'm I'm from originally East Tennessee, a little town called Sparta. Okay. White County, but uh, I'm in Murfreesboro. I've been here for uh, a little over 20 years in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. I know where it is. Famous uh, historic Civil War town. Oh, sure, sure. Um, my sister and brother were living in, in Collierville, which is a, a suburb of uh, Memphis. Yeah. Familiar and, with it. Uh, 
my my nephew was uh, involved at the volunteer. He got voted best dancer uh, ever. He was a cheerleader there. He's a hell of a guy. He runs a roadhouse in Texas called nice. the Dizzy Rooster. He's uh, he's a kick in the ass, and he's got the perfect name for it. His name is Ricky Rickman, and he's a great American. You know he. He, he can dance uh, better than anybody I've ever seen. He should have his own TV show, but he's just as happy to be uh, a father and uh, a saloon manager. Now, is, know? He, is he like a two-stepper dancer or is he a ballroom dancer? What kind of dancing does he do? He can do anything. He can do uh, tango, disco, two-step, line dance. Uh, he, you know, he's just one of those guys. Fucking he's got, John Travolta, uh, man. in his jeans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all the black girls like him. You know, he's just one of those guys. He, you know, you put the music on and he can dance. He's a, he's a great American. Nice. I'm exactly the opposite, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm lucky that I have a wife that can't dance either, but apparently I, my uh, father was quite a, quite a character. And, uh, when he got back from Vietnam, he, he ended up in Berkeley protesting against the war and, um, that's where he met my mother. And, uh, so after he died, I met this woman, uh, who he always referred to as Susie cream cheese, which is a, I know it from the Frank Zappa song, but I don't know it other than that. And after he died, uh, she came for scattering his ashes and we got to meet her. And the first funny thing was that my cousin started hitting on her because she didn't realize she was old enough to be his mom. That was, and she was gorgeous. And uh, then I asked her where the name Susie Cream Cheese came from, and she laughed and wouldn't say shit. And then I asked how she met my dad, and she said, well, went to this cool party with a really nice guy, and there was this whore of a man dancing out on the, on the dance floor. And he was so much fun that I decided to ditch my date and go hang out with him. And that was my dad. And I don't know... You know, I can't dance to save my life, so I, I would, I would, I would pay a lot of money to go back and be a fly on the wall at a party like that. I'm all natural. I make up my own moves. <laughs> oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Do you do it with your clothes on or off, man? It depends. You know, uh... <laughs> one of my favorite gunsmiths in the entire country is in uh, McMinnville, uh, Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah, McMinnville. That's that close to Jeff my hometown. Hillbilly. Yeah, Jeff Miller at Hillbilly Firearms is probably the preeminent builder of the Galil in this country. I must meet this man. Jeff he, Miller. Uh, he was in, uh, Jeff Miller. He was uh, in my brigade uh, in the Army at Fort Benning just a couple of years after I left. Uh, he was in the 15th Cavalry. Um, he's a real character and uh, an absolute expert. Uh, when he doesn't have the right part, he typically uh, fabricates, and uh, everything comes out looking real good. Um, he can be a little bit cranky. Uh, a lot of guys find out if they twist his tail, he'll uh, he'll bite them a little bit, uh, which I would expect of any uh, American gunsmith, right? I'm going to look him up right quick. Is he on the interwebs at all? Oh, I'm sure Hillbilly he is. Farms uh, right there. Yeah, Hillbilly Firearms. That's... So do you bring the crazy ideas that he yells at you for to me? Well, his <laughs> way of dealing with me is to typically ignore me. Uh, <laughs> I can't to, believe to I've never heard of this guy. On the line, 
I'll make a call or two to Idaho, and soon Chantal is uh, telling me how wonderful everything is. And then uh, I've got Keeney on the line, and uh, I'm distracting him from getting any actual work done. <laughs> so I refrain from calling all that often, don't I, Brian? You refrain too much, I would say. Um, but uh, the, the, the occasional email missives are always appreciated. And, um, yeah, I, I strive to imitate. Nils has a particular, he'll probably whip out some of his stage banter during the show here, but um, his emails are a hundred percent of them have something hilarious in them. And um, yeah, so I, he, Nils is a big comedic influence for sure. I need a lot of work. Comedy so is welcome show, but, on this show. You know. So feel free to, <laughs> to be as comedic as you want to be. So, well, I, I kept my mouth shut pretty much uh, all through the Travis Haley uh, experience and uh, the last day, uh, you know, when the, we did our, our uh, uh, critique and uh, self-criticism, uh, that sort of thing, I, uh, you know, held, held forth and told everybody what I thought. And it was a good time. We had a good time in that uh, class. I learned a bit and uh, I tried not to irritate staff as much as I typically would. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Uh Lefty, I met Nils at the same time that I met Jared. I was going to ask you, you met at that class, at yep. Haley's class? Nice. Yep, yep. It was a good good bunch of dudes. Uh, well, we'll definitely have to yeah. have another one here. Get uh, there, there wasn't a dud in the bunch. It went from uh, uh, Tier 1 contractors right down to a couple of shipbuilding, uh, shipfitters from uh, Connecticut. And mm -hmm. uh, every man in the class uh, brought something uh, with him. And it was uh, very much enjoyable. Uh, I had a great time. I hadn't been to a training course in some years, and I even got to use that as continuing education to satisfy my insurance requirement. Uh, excellent. Is that for your uh, uh, PI license? Yeah, I, I, I keep a license still in California. I've surrendered the Canadian license, and uh, I, I had licenses in a few other states, but I only need one in California any longer. And tell me how you pronounce your last name. Gervalius. Gervalius. Yeah. Is that it? Okay. Just like it sounds, it's a common spelling, common name, right? Very good. I mean, yeah, it's real common. Tennessee. Yeah, that's a real common name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got all the Johnsons and the Millers out here, you know. <laughs> the Gervaliuses well, are just, you know, next door. So, yeah. <laughs> so, where, where are you originally from? I was born in New York City. New Don't York City? Me. <laughs> I was. I was born in the same part of New York City as Donald Trump. I was born in Flushing. Oh my gosh, Flushing. What That's a name. Right. How long did you live there? I got out of there uh, after a couple of years, and my dad took an editor's job in Terre Haute, Indiana. And so we lived in Terre Haute for several years and then moved on from Terre Haute. To California? My dad was at the New York Times when I was born. He worked at the New York Times? That's correct. Cool. What did he do there? Um, a little work there and there. Um, he, uh, he had been involved in some things in the 50s, uh, like the integration of the Little Rock Public Schools. He was a uh, chosen reservoir survivor and had that thing where he still needed the adrenaline 
And so his way of doing it was to work on behalf of uh, various organizations to help integrate the Little Rock Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, he became kind of a hot property. There were some uh, sheet-wearing characters who wanted to kill him. And so he, he departed uh, the South. Um, but uh, he went to New York City, and that's where he met my mother. My, my mother was uh, sort of a prep school girl, and uh, her grandfather was told to go to engineering school by John Browning. And so she had, you know, she was from a well-connected family in New York. Her grandfather was a New York State Commissioner of Transportation and a mechanical engineer. John um, Browning of so, the, the Browning machine gun? That is correct. My great-grandfather was born in Laage, Belgium, to, the, to the, uh, our ambassador to Belgium. And as you know, Browning was there selling machine guns and shotguns and pistols and that sort of thing and uh, had to regularly interact with uh, the embassy staff, that sort of thing. And as a young man, John Browning told my great-grandfather, go to engineering school, you have the aptitude for it. And he did. He, he was president of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers for a couple of years in the 50s. And he was a kind of an iconoclast in his own way, but he never designed any interesting machine guns. <laughs> well, it's it's hard to measure next to uh, to John Moses Browning for much of anything. Um, he's he's sort of I I put him in the same league as as Newton. Um, as Newton is to physics, John Moses Browning I think is to guns. I think that's a fair statement. Um, so yeah, that that's quite a thing. He did with recoil operated arms what uh, Mikhail Kalashnikov did with gas operated arms. Uh, I I think it's a, an interesting pairing. Uh, they might not be each other's cup of tea immediately, but you know they'd get on pretty famously. Uh, Browning and Kalashnikov. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The as much as uh, people like to trash the 1911 today, it is just an it is a staggering work of genius. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. In in the absence, it's a. We have such an advantage today with computer-aided design, you know, CAD. Um, and to do what they did without even a calculator, you know, and, and, you know, they used to, not many people have to deal with logarithms in everyday life, but, but that's a, a thing that's fairly, you know, typical in science. And the way that you used to calculate logarithms was that somebody would do the math the other way around, and a logarithm is answers the question, what do I raise 10 to to get this number? Um, or what do I raise the letter E to, which is a, a complicated number. But it's another it's like pi, but very few people have heard of it. Um, and uh, people used to have to do those equations backwards. And then they would they would. Yeah, they they'd get the answer and then work the way the back. question, yeah. basically. And yeah, they'd back, this is, they'd back their way in. Yeah, and this is, and so you'd have these, you know, people where their whole life was just doing rote calculation for the sake of, of data, and that's how people used to what, what a calculator is today. It actually still uses that same, that same thing for all the trigonometric functions. It's just a lookup table, and they literally had to go and look up every think in calculation like that. And yet they still made things as gorgeous 
as the 1911 that worked and um and to have it to have it uh, yeah it's just a staggering work so our guest I, is, is Nils Gravelius. If you guys haven't figured it out by now, uh, we've we've dropped his name a couple of times. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do our intro. Um, this is all good stuff, and it's all going in the show. So, um, but uh, let's introduce our guest here, Nils Gravelius. He is uh, uh, a private investigator now in uh, L.A., the Los Angeles area, and uh, supposedly in Canada. He, at one time, sounded like you mentioned. Uh, he's a former army, uh, enlisted at 17. Uh, we want to hear about that story. And, um, he's an author and what else does he do? There was something else that you do. Oh, I, you know, uh, not that much. I mean, um, I enlisted in the army at 17 after a long, successful career in public academics. Um, I joined with a 2.0 grade average, meaning three A's and three F's, uh, and a chicken shit uh, juvenile criminal record that might have involved a motorcycle, some beer, and some tits. Um, my father laughed at me when he signed the paperwork for me to enlist in the Army. The single best way to offend a Marine as a son is to enlist in the Army. And... Uh, he said to me, the Army is a chicken shit outfit, but they're tougher than you. In two weeks, you're going to be begging me to come home with some dog shit discharge from the United States Army, denoting just what a pile of crap you really are. <laughs> so I stayed for seven years. Take uh, that, Dad. <laughs> now, I don't want either of you to believe that I was a great soldier. I, I'm, I was not. Um uh, I did okay at some things and at other things I sort of lost interest, but I, I hung on uh, long enough. Uh, I was discharged as a staff sergeant at a certain point. Uh, I served two enlistments. Uh, I did three tours in Korea and I went to a few other places. And I will tell you that I got a hell of a lot more out of the United States Army than they got out of me, which is not a boast. Um, I, a man should always be, uh, f should always feel privileged to serve this nation. No one has to thank me for it. It's nice when somebody says thanks for your service, but I don't need it. It was a privilege to serve this nation. Okay. Do you realize that in and of itself II, made you a great, a great, uh, soldier right there. Just during world war two, I appreciate that there were sick and lame men who would fake wellness in order to serve even if they had to serve in some mundane, banal thing, unloading trucks in in uh, uh, Louisiana or something. Some saw combat, even though they were greatly debilitated because they were patriotic. Now we have motherfuckers who fake ethics to avoid service. Okay, they do every single thing. They have all of these complicated reasons why it is entirely beneath them to do anything, to lift even a finger in the service of this nation. And let me tell you, uh, guys like that are lower than whale shit. When I hear some guy say, well, I was going to enlist up, but, you know, if my drill sergeant got in my face just once, I'd have to sock him in the jaw. Well, let me tell you something. My drill sergeant would have fucking eat his ass alive. My drill sergeant was a Tennessee dirt farmer named Jerry Wallace Parrott, United States Cavalry. And the very first time I walked into the command post, it was like I'd stepped on an IED or something because he said to me, 
you California piece of shit, you homosexual. He did, used a different word than homosexual. Mm -hmm. He said, how dare you enlist in the United States Cavalry as a piece of shit, a 17-year-old high school dropout from California with a criminal record. Who in the fuck do you think you are joining the Cavalry thinking you're going to wear cross sabers on your collar? I'll tell you what, from now on, you're going to answer to private asswipe. So when I call for private asswipe, you answer up. Do you understand me, you piece of shit? I mean, that was the gist. Welcome to the army, son. <laughs> oh, God. Right. Now, uh, I'll be forever in Sergeant Parrott's debt. I don't want you to think anything askance of the man. He lived and breathed the United States Cavalry from stem to stern, top to bottom. Hills, yeah. Uh, you know, you'd think he was at the little big horn that he ran through the Shenandoah Valley with little Phil Sheridan. That, uh, you know, he was in the Shaw, the Yadrang, the Chowan. Uh, you'd think that he had lib liberated Manila himself. Um, he was just a tough, hard son of a bitch, and he had very high standards and the means, will, and ability to enforce them. And I'll always be in that man's debt. It's because he's from Tennessee. Hell yeah. <laughs> he could. Not now, now, in basic combat training, you're not supposed to have alcohol. And we discovered a cook working in the mess hall who would sell us a bottle of hard booze for $20. And uh, the only booze he would bring us was his shit called Rebel Yell. And I must say, Rebel Yell was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but where are you going to hide uh, a quart of Rebel Yell in the cavalry basic training barracks? So we hid it in the command post, right? We had a guy who was called the House Mouse, PFC Glenn, who had the key to the command post to keep it clean and squared away. So we hid our stash of booze in the drill sergeant's office and we <laughs> replenished it every two or three days or so and we dispensed shots of rebel yell depending on merits and demerits and you know to get a demerit in the cavalry could be quite a thing there's some arrogant sons of bitches in the cavalry i don't know if you men know this as a as a wayward private my first weekend subsequent to being shaken down for uniforms and equipment i neglected to make my bunk bed correctly in the 5th Cavalry Squadron, and Sergeant Parrott came in at 5.30 in the morning on the Sunday and saw how my bunk bed compared to the rest of the 5th Cavalry. <clears throat> he had 3rd Platoon disassemble bunk beds and take them out onto Squadron Field in front of 5th Cavalry and 6th Cavalry so that everybody could see what a piece of shit I was and, and everybody could enjoy this bit of extra training on how to make bunk beds in dress right, dress formation on Squadron Field. And uh, he even sent House Mouse down to the, the Disney Barracks mess hall for sea rations so that we could eat sea rations on a Sunday morning while we took our extra bit of instruction on how to make a bunk bed. And then as we were re disassembling them to take them back into the barracks, my squad leader took me aside and he said, I'll try to protect you, but I want you to uh, uh, keep in mind that the entire platoon wants you dead. So I was fully expecting a blanket party that night. And I said to myself, laying in my bunk that night, if I make it through this evening, I swear I'll never fuck up making on my bunk bed again. I'll never buddy fuck the 5th Cavalry or any other cavalryman at any time for any purpose. 
So the next day, my bunk bed was standing tall and and everything, and uh, he still called me Private Asswipe. He didn't stop calling me Private Asswipe till I finished uh, the combat skills course, and we moved on to advanced training in the cavalry, which consisted of map reading, compass work, machine guns, uh, how to debauch from an M113 armored personnel carrier, how to drive the fucking thing, right? Do a little bit of maintenance on it, how to clean weapons, how to operate a radio, how to adjust artillery fire, uh, first aid, uh, how to operate as a squad, as a team, uh, how to report effectively and brief on a radio, how to uh, shack numbers, uh, lots of things like that. Nothing, nothing particularly interesting, a bit of demolition, uh, claymore charges, uh, claymore mines, um, you know, how to, how to set charges, how to clear charges, you know, st- all the, all the stuff you'd need to know as a, as a cavalry scout. Now, uh, well, they now train cavalry scouts at Fort Benning, Georgia, right next to where they train infantrymen. Yeah. It, they used to exclusively train cavalrymen at the, uh, at Fort Knox, Kentucky. That, uh, that tradition ended, uh, about 15 years or 10 years ago, who knows? So, uh, that's what it was like being a cavalry scout. So what was your uh, particular favorite uh, skill set? Getting a little extra sleep, man. <laughs> Getting to the mess hall ahead of everybody else. Right? Finishing your shit a little bit earlier? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, behaving as though I might be sober even when I wasn't. Uh, sneaking a smoke, uh, sitting on top of gasoline, things like that. <laughs> you know? So I was rewarded for all of my skills as a cavalryman by being sent to infantry units in Korea. I was never in a cavalry unit again after basic combat training, right? I was always in the infantry uh, other than a couple of months in a tank battalion. Now, Nils, do I remember correctly that you were in intelligence for a while there, or do I have that wrong? You have that correct. Uh, I eventually got recruited to uh, an intelligence job. Um in uh, counterintelligence and did that for a couple of years in Korea. Do you do that in Korea? Well, you take your training uh, stateside and uh, my right. first posting in counterintelligence was uh, back in Korea because I knew Korea so well. I don't, that was my third tour. Did you learn to speak Korean? Uh, I speak a bit of Korean. Yeah. A little bit of Korean. Now, did you, yeah. uh, during your uh, in- intelligence work, um, the, to the extent that you can talk about it, and obviously, um, talk about some of the, the more interesting um, missions that you had with that, or not. There seems to be something wrong with the microphone here. I think somebody's asking me a question that I can't answer. Um, and I don't... Uh, okay, so there are some things... Every single thing in human intelligence is sensitive. So... Not in subtext, not in context, and not in text can I talk about it, nor nor shall I. Other than to state I wasn't any better at that than I was at... Uh, Sneaking a smoke. You know, <laughs> making up my bunk bed and pressing my uniform. Drinking the rebel and, yell. You know, uh, I, I drank a little rebel yell. Um Maybe I can ask you this, Nils. I'm, I'm, I unfortunately did not serve... And um, I actually don't know what counterintelligence is. Would you mind describing on sort of a National Geographic Wikipedia level for the audience the general idea of, of counterintel, or is that just a tricky thing to do? Well, I can talk about it in, in these general terms. 
The U.S. Army counterintelligence agents have the general mission of identifying and neutralizing the intelligence collection efforts of hostile intelligence services and non-state actors. If you want an idea of what kind of men come out of United States Army counterintelligence, I will refer you to a young sergeant who toward the end of World War II and right up for a couple of years after World War II operated a whole province of, of Germany and ran all intelligence collection operations, uh, denazified parts of the German government and military, identified men who were gonna be future assets and future problems. And he was just a sergeant. And uh, he was of unquestioned loyalty to the United States and a great asset as a sergeant. He had all of those advanced responsibilities. He was often in very sensitive discussions with foreign leaders. Uh, there were men who feared him, and there were men who owed their lives after having served in uh, the Abwehr, which was the German intelligence service, because he was able to separate through and identify some who would, who would be uh, friends in the future and some who needed to uh, dance at the end of a rope. You know that man is Henry Kissinger. Hmm. Got it. Um, yeah, that is a very good description. And um, yeah, oddly, um, at the beginning there, I thought you had read up on my grandfather because his CV is very similar. And he was a captain, though, at the time and ran, ran parts of Germany after, uh, after the victory. And, um, yeah, it's a, a very interesting group of people. And, and in that time, just the, well, like you said, that at, at that time, it was everybody signed up, you know, after Pearl Harbor, it was, it wasn't a class thing. You know, it's, it's today when people in, in upper middle and upper class families enlist, you know, it's just greeted generally with horror. And, um, the, um, the sense of patriotism and duty at that time, um, was wholly different from what we have today. And I love the, the, the line from Mark Twain, um, love for your country, always love for the government when it deserves it. And my fear and sadness is that far too few people love our country and far too many associate our country and the government as being the same thing. And uh, I have a suspicion that if we were all able to separate the two, that we might have greater love for our fellow Americans. Um, we are stratified because we, we aren't asked to sacrifice anything any longer. Mm -hmm. um, when it was a shared sacrifice, then people were very cautious about what they said and what they did and who, whom, with whom they associated. Um, I think that George Bush made a bigger mistake than invading Iraq. And I think that biggest, bigger mistake was his failure to nationalize the sacrifice and reintroduce, reintroduce a draft. Mm. <laughs> when they say they, they always lay it off on the military, they'll say, well, the army and the Navy don't want a draft. Well, to hell with what the generals want. Look at the sons of bitches we have wearing uh, general stars right now. 
There are a bunch of Wolshevik assholes. Uh, uh, Mark Milley wouldn't make a pimple on a soldier's ass. <laughs> I don't care how many rows of fruit salad he has on his pocket. He wouldn't make a he wouldn't make a pimple on Patton's ass. I'll tell you that. Yep. So, yep. Um, when it was a shared sacrifice, people were much more judicious, and politicians were more careful about how they expended the blood of of America's sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. they love to say, well, we had a draft during Vietnam. We didn't have a draft. We we had a, a system where uh, working class, uh, working poor, inner city and rural and rural youth got drafted and anybody with any kind of uh, connections at all managed to, to beat it. If I was going to have a draft, it would it would be a no exceptions draft. You're in a you're in a wheelchair. Great. You're going into the Space Corps, my friend. Mm -hmm. And if you're too good to serve uh, this nation in uniform, how about you never get Social Security? How about you never get a federally guaranteed mortgage? How about you never get uh, 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 any kind of public education from that moment forward? And I'm not talking about a thing where everybody serves, but if your number comes up, you go. And that's just how it is. And I would I would die to see uh, the Bush twins having to unload a deuce and a half in the Korean mud. Uh, I would love to see baby Lord Husseino's beautiful young daughters having to stitch wounds up in uh, Baghdad, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's just too, uh, too nasty a, a world for these rarefied uh, specimens of humanity. And I'll never see that, uh, nor shall you. Uh, mm -hmm. And I will tell you one more thing in my estimate. In the near future, our military will be converted to a politically correct, transgendered, uniform, meals on wheels force for the third world. And all the real fighting will be done by drones, clones, robots, and mercenaries to perfectly insulate the, the drooling filth that we elect to public office from any consequences ever. Drones, and clones, and mercenaries. I like that. That's a movie. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, coming from the technology side, it's one reason that I left industry was that I could just no longer be part of the machine of, you know, the people think that the industrial revolution happened in the 1800s. And that's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is that it's ongoing and that we're in it right now, you know, and there was first the industrial revolution um, then we had computers and then the medical revolution. And now we're into genetics in a way that is terrifying to behold. And uh, as well as, you know, the the globalization of, of communication with with the Internet. And um, you can look at that as one long revolution. And um, it's it's very scary in which it's the, way the it's globalization and, of everything. It's not just communication. It's commerce and. And everything has been yeah. There's been a globalized. That's actually kind of the the inspiration for the name of the the rifle that my company produces is uh, from a book called 1491 that describes pre-Columbian America. So you know the year before Columbus arrived, what was going on? And there's some staggering things there, like there were more people living in the Western Hemisphere than the Eastern Hemisphere. You know, and then that that's a mind-blowing idea. And the technology was very advanced in the Western Hemisphere. You know, the, just because they didn't, there are good reasons that the wheel did not get invented in the Americas. Um, but they had astronomy like a motherfucker. 
And, um, you know, then everything changed and it happened to be disease. And the thesis of, of, uh, of that book, I'm getting around to my point, is, uh, you know, there's this mother continent uh, some time ago called, that's called Pangea. You know, if you look at a globe, you can kind of see how all the different continents kind of fit together like puzzle pieces in a really strange way. And the thesis of 1491 is that, uh, that sailing ships uh, knitted Pangea back together again. And I think it's very safe to say um, that the Internet has done or whatever you want to call what we're in now, globalization of everything, has sort of taken that Pangea and crumpled into, into a ball so that there's multiple touching points, you know, all over the place. And we have these issues like, uh, there we go. That's a great graphic for, for those watching on YouTube of how everything kind of knits together. And um, Africa and Europe, it's pretty easy to see. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we've got this, this very strange singularity that we're going through right now. And it, I think that's a com it's a comfort to me at any rate that things are so weird because this has never happened before in the history of the world so far as we know. Let's get back to Niels. We want to learn more about Niels. So, uh, Niels, at 17, you went into the Army, enlisted. Um, so you didn't get your, your high school education, but you did, you did eventually earn your GED while you were enlisted, right? That's correct. That's and, a proud moment in my past. And you even turned down an offer to go to West Point. Talk about those two things. Well, I didn't get a formal offer to West Point. The, uh, I had a company commander and a, a platoon leader who took me aside as a PFC and suggested that I apply and that they would ratify my application for West Point prep, which is a, uh, like a prep school you go to as an enlisted man to mm -hmm. see if you've got the, the, the mathematic basics down and how your character is. Uh, and they evaluate you for suitability for appointment to West Point. I can tell you who that lieutenant was because he's a blogger on Red State. That was Mike Ford. And uh, he's got a, a blog on Red State. He's a great American uh, in the first scout platoon, first of the 58th Infantry at Fort Benning. His nickname was Iron Mike. And he was, uh, he was an American soldier through and through. Yes, he was a West Point grad, and he never breached that thing between officer and enlisted. He wasn't your buddy. But at the same time, the man had nuts of steel, and I'll always uh, respect him. Okay, so what was wrong with me that I didn't accept West Point prep? Well, I knew that I would screw it up. <clears throat> I knew that all the things I could get away with as an enlisted man would be for naught as an officer because uh, they, they're swimming in a different pond. You know, an officer can lose his entire career for un one unwise sentence, and I was all about unwise paragraphs, pages, <laughs> chapters, and and and, uh, uh, and diagrams. I, that that's the sort of guy I was. You knew your limitations, um, huh? <laughs> precisely. I I knew I knew how much trouble I'd get into. Um, as an older man, I wish I had gone for it and and done it. Maybe they'd have. Maybe they'd have whipped me into shape and I'd have been a fine officer. I don't know. Chances are that uh, 
I'd have fucked up even worse as an officer than I ever did as a as a sergeant. I was a I was a buck sergeant when I was nineteen, and I was a staff sergeant when I was twenty two. Now, what's a buck sergeant? Uh, well, an E five, the three chevrons, and and to be a hard stripe means that you're not acting as a sergeant. You are you are act, you you have the pay grade as well as the stripes. Yeah. And uh, I used to get funny looks um, because I looked like I was. 15 or 16 at the time, you know, yeah. uh, they'd, they'd say, you're an acting Jack, aren't you? And I'd say, no, I'm hard stripe. And I'd have men actually ask for, you know, uh, more senior NCOs actually ask for my orders. Uh, it just gave me more opportunities to fuck things up. Um, you know, on the one hand, you can be doing very well. You could have somebody wanting to maybe pin a medal on you or select you for counterintelligence or something while another man is trying to court martial you and, send you to Fort Leavenworth to repair the roads. It, it, uh, it all depends, right? Um, one, one of the things I learned was that a, a moving target is much harder to hit under, under any circumstance. So always stay in motion. You know, even if you're not doing a fucking thing, stay in motion, you know? That's a good philosophy to live by, definitely. If I had it to do over again, I'd go for special warfare of some sort other than counterintelligence. Counterintelligence is a form of special warfare. But uh, mm-hmm. um, the sort of thing um, where uh, they're looking for what it is that you do rather than uh, dinging you for how your wall locker looks on a Monday morning or uh, whether or not you have whiskey on your breath on a Tuesday morning uh, whether or not uh, you're sleeping with a female captain or something like that. And I would never do things like that. I just don't. Yeah, I was, about to ask. I, I was about to ask because there's clearly a story there, but my, my sense is we're not going to get it out of you. I was much better behaved than you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about um, some of the finer points of living in South Korea. You were there for three tours. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, so South Korea was just emerging from third world status. They went from third world to first world in 35 years. The Korean War ended uh, in July 1953. And by, you know, summer of 1980, they were, you know, they were headed in that direction. Well, when, when they put the Olympics on in 1988, it was obvious to anybody paying attention that they were a first world nation. Uh, I called my dad from Wee Jung Boo in 1985 just to wish him Merry Christmas. And he asked me where I was. And I said, I'm in Wee Jung Boo. And he said to me, the last time I was in Wee Jung Boo, it was flat and on fire. Now, Now, when people tell you that Mexico can't change, or people tell you that uh, Africa is incapable of, of maturing into a series of nation states with, with mature economies and, and political entities, or they'll say that about Afghanistan. I say bullshit. The South Koreans were flat the fuck broke in 1953. They didn't have anything other than us protecting them from an aggressive neighbor. And they, they transition from third world to first world in 35 years. If they can do it, Mexico can do it. Yeah. Bolivia What's, can do it. Absolutely. They've uh, just got to have the desire. Do it. Yeah. And any of those nations can do it. The, what the South Koreans did not have that would have retarded them from maturing as, a, as a, an economy and a political entity was socialism. 
they ruthlessly cracked down on their socialists and still do, or, or still did up until the early 90s when they started to entertain them quite a bit. But um, Need some of that here. Uh, South Korea did, did, did all of those things. I mean, they were a vassal slave state of Japan from 1910 to 1945. And uh, I, I have endless admiration for them. So as far as uh, your your time over there, the, the three tours, what did you really enjoy about the um, the culture of South Korea? The culture of South Korea, uh, they're pugnacious. Nothing ever really gets them down. You step on them and they get right back up again. Um, as much as they dislike the Japanese and they dislike them with, with good cause, they're culturally almost identical to the Japanese. They, they wouldn't, no Korean listening to this would want to hear that. And no Japanese would want to hear it either because the Japanese look down their noses at them still. They're a blend of, of Japanese and Chinese culture in a lot of ways and then unique in their own. You know, their language has the same linguistic roots as Hungarian and Finnish. It's an Altaic language. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, it, on that, Niels, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Genghis Khan made it all the way to Finland. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? And would you mind describing the, the, the theory on the, on why those two, you know, relatively, um, uh, far flung regions share that? Is it accident or, or is there a, a historical, you know, some historical overlap with Genghis that, that caused that? I think as far north as uh, Genghis Khan got was uh, to Poland. Okay, I don't think he made it to Lithuania, or, or um, I'm sorry, to Finland. But uh, plainly Altaic speakers, descendants of the ancient Scythians, etc., uh, made it in three successive waves into Finland. The first two waves are what we called Laplanders when I was young. Now they're called Sami. And they speak Altaic languages. The first group of Sami speak a different uh, version than the second group. And, and often they cannot communicate with each other in the same way that Russian Inuit cannot communicate with American Inuit. Uh, it's the same linguistic group, but the language is very different. And then you have the third wave. And what I think these waves of of human migration up into the Arctic were was the retreat of the Arctic ice sheet which at one time was a mile and a half thick, and then it would retreat, and then it would grow back, and then retreat and grow back. Well, some hunters are bolder than other hunters, so to follow the retreating ice sheet was to follow new hunting territory, wasn't it? And it's always primogeniture. At one level or another, the oldest male inherits everything, and so his younger brothers have to go out with ability and weapons and everything but money and love to, to go make their way in the world. With, without primogeniture, there would be no United States of America. United States of America was put together by the second, third, and fourth sons of the dispossessed Scottish, the dispossessed English, the dispossessed Dutch, uh, that sort of thing. There would be no America without primogeniture. That's a really interesting idea. I'd never thought of that. Yeah, the, they arrived the, here with everything but wealth. They had to make their own wealth here. And the United States was not the first progressive nation, as communists will like to tell you in the university system. 
United States was formed in a tax revolt of the merchant class, and that was a merchant class created by Henry Tudor and his daughter Elizabeth Tudor, uh, the foundations of these companies like the Hudson Bay Company, to, to go out and build wealth that could be taxed by the crown rather than the crown owning it directly. And that's, that's, that's really what built North America and India as well. Uh, probably one of the reasons we're so simpatico with the Indians. It's not just that we were colonized by the British, it's that uh, uh, we became uh, merchant class nations with British civil service rules and common law that enabled uh, enabled us to do things. I mean, what the English did for the Indians was give them a common language that they didn't have to fight over and uh, a, a way to step out of the caste system and do business with each other and marry above their caste or below their caste uh, without fear of retribution or great family loss or, or shame. Yeah. So, Niels, I got to ask. That's what the British did for the Indians. I got to ask. Um at some point, did you continue your education? Because you are very knowledgeable about <laughs> uh, history and geography. and uh, I think I've read every single magazine that Penthouse ever published, and I even <laughs> looked at some of the pictures. I like to read. Man. You know, uh, it's like this. I've been to nine years of college in three nations, seven different institutions. And if I go back full time for a couple of years, I might be able to get a, a an associate's degree. Couldn't I now? I, <laughs> I think you could, you I'm could not, teach. I'm not as sharp as Brian is. Brian's a very bright erudite man. He's capable of great precision work, that sort of thing. I'm kind of scattershot. I'm, I'm the embodiment of chaos and problems. I don't know. I think you're. I think you're left brain. You're very creative. Uh, obviously, you're very smart, very intelligent. So after your service, um, you got out of the service. What? Uh, where did your path take you? What was next for Niels? Well, I found myself to a bar first of all for a drink, <laughs> sure and then uh, I started working for various uh, outfits, uh, going uh, overseas, doing this and that. I. Picked up bail jumpers for a national automobile and casualty. I'd go down to Mexico and bring them back, you know, at gunpoint to the oh, yeah. trunk of my car. And then so I years that. later, I found out they'll actually prosecute you for kidnapping, even if it's an American, you bring him back, yeah. right? Yeah. I used to do some fugitive recovery myself. Yeah, I did a little bit of that. Um, no BS. Like, Mar I'm shocked that either one of you guys have done this kind of stuff. You, the, this is a topic that... You guys should spend some time talking about this because this sounds just <laughs> fucking wild to me. Well, okay, so most bail bondsmen are are assholes. They'll yeah. lie to you about the value of the bail that the guy is out on. And he always hires his brother-in-law to handle the easy cases because he doesn't want to pay anything for them, right? Yeah. So they always call you at the last minute when bail is about to be forfeit. And they say, now this guy, he's... Uh, He's a fraternity brother who got caught dealing a little bit of pot, and he's just nervous about going to court, and I need you to go pick him up. And you go to pick him up, and he's a member of Big Hazard or White Fence, one of the big Cholo street gangs, and he's a heroin dealer, and he's armed to the fucking teeth, and he's up in this uh, part of East L.A. called the Alps, which is this hillside community where everybody can see someone coming from a long way off, and you're not going to sit Code 5 up there looking for someone for any more than a minute. And uh, 
So most of the work involves informants and your best informants are their mother or their girlfriend or their sister, whoever was dumb enough to bail them out in the first place. Yeah. And half the time your informant is setting you up because they're, you know, blood is thicker than water. They're always going to be loyal to the guy that, you know, so you got to learn how to get a little get back once in a while. I got, I got, uh, bounced around pretty good on a case in uh, like 92 or 93. When I finally got this jackass into, into custody, I acted like, you know, I was getting paged by his girlfriend who had set me up to, to get my ass kicked and everything. And I made like I was, yeah, as soon as I get him booked in, I'll get you your cut. And the next time I saw her in court, she had two black eyes, you know, that she, you know, she'd been, <laughs> she'd been pounded around pretty good, you know, well, that's what you get for being a lying cunt, okay? Um, <laughs> should have just played it straight with me. She'd have been better off saying something to me like, got you know, that I'm beaten. in love with Cisco, and I'm never going to give him up, so fuck you, right? But <laughs> you, you said, you know, you want to play games. I can play games pretty well too now, can't I? So, uh, yeah, I, I've done a little bit of it. Um, I've hold, I've hold guys across the country. I got some guy out of uh, – out of the Los Angeles County jail in like 2002. And he had to go to some fancy drug rehab in Meridian, Mississippi. One of those places with buff black guys in, in white jumpsuits with butterfly nets, you know, one of the, it looks like a country club, but you know, it has like electric fences. Uh, so I'm driving him cross country through Texas and I've got a brand new in, infinity SUV and I get pulled over by uh some Texas sheriff and he's already got a tow truck there because he thinks he's going to impound it. He's convinced I'm running dope. I said to him, man, I'm taking this guy to uh, drug rehab in Mississippi. He just uh, bailed out. I've got the warrant paperwork here and everything. And he says, you're bullshitting me. I'm going to take this car. And I said, no, it's, it's real. It took him an hour on the phone with his own County attorney to realize he wasn't getting a brand new infinity SUV. You know, he was pretty disappointed. Didn't even want to give me my driver's license back now. Fucking did he? Douche. It's, uh, I got this character to Mississippi and uh, slept for eight hours and turned around and came right back. Right. Collect that check. That's what it's about. Oh, yeah, yeah, man's got to earn a living, right? And I ain't dying, so I am earning a living. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking off air earlier about the Wonderland uh, killings. I, I only know it by name, don't know nothing about it, but it sounds like you were involved in it. Do you mind educating us a little so bit? So I want to I get to that. I want to build oh, up to that because we're, we're not to his PI career yet, Brian. Come on. We're, I'm we're, sorry, you're right. We're you're on right. fugitive recovery here. So I was going to, how many, how many years did you do the fugitive recovery? I did that off and on for, I don't know. Some, I mean, it wasn't steady work that you go out and do every day. You know, there'd be, uh, it's feast or famine where they're calling you only when they need you. And there yeah. was only oh, one I bondsman I liked to work for. And he was a prince of a guy. He was a great guy. His sons are great guys. His name was Frank Rapetti. And he flew P-38 Lightnings in World War II. Oh, sweet. And he was just a stud and a half. And, and, uh, like a low-key, unassuming guy. He was a Pasadena yeah. police officer after that. He owned the house that the Western painter Charles Russell had built in Pasadena called Trails End. Oh, nice. He had a drop-dead good-looking wife 20 years younger than him and so many kids you could tell he really liked her, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he was a fantastic guy. He died in 1993, and I'll never forget him. And there was some wild story he would never confirm or deny 
about him taking a P-38 Lightning under the Golden Gate Bridge at 400 knots at 6 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Holy shit. Okay. He's, <laughs> the story was that he got so do- down low on the deck because he didn't want to hit the bridge that he didn't realize how low he was going, and he was pulling twin rooster tails of seawater with him as he flew <laughs> under the bridge. And that just gets you more propeller bite into the air with all that moisture. You know, it's just like altitude density on yeah. the wings. And, you know, he was just one of those guys. And uh, after that, he got in trouble. They made him fly B-25 gunships in China. That's where he did all of his combat time was in China flying B-25s. And he told me he got shot down a couple times. And uh, later on, I saw his shadow box, you know, with his medals and everything. He had the air medal and all this. And I'm looking at his stuff, China, India, Burma theater. And he, he got out as a captain. I asked him, well, Frank, where's your purple heart? And he looked at me and said, I never got hurt. You know? <laughs> Holy mackerel. The, awesome. guy had, the guy had nuts like church bells, man. <laughs> uh, he would have been a great dude to know. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you one more Frank Rapetti story. He had gone to Caltech in Pasadena and was working as a plumber to get through Caltech. It's an expensive school. And he screwed up somebody's mansion and had to leave town. I mean, you know, doing plumbing work, he burst a pipe and, you know, flooded somebody's ceiling or some, some shit like that. Yeah. And, so he went to Hawaii. Somebody in San Pedro had taught him to run a Momsen lung, which is like a, an early rebreather dive device. So all this predates aqua lung. So he was doing salvage work in Hawaii in 1941 and spent the night out on the town having a drink in, in Lanahuhu or Honolulu or someplace like that when the Japanese attacked. And he was a civilian salvage diver. He wasn't a, a Navy guy. So the shore patrol is working Hotel Street, getting everybody into into port. And he, uh, some lieutenant said to him, get in the truck. He says, I'm not, not in the Navy. And the lieutenant said to him, you're in the Navy today, man. And so, you know, he gets in the truck. He's got a bad hangover. He gets to the to the dock. And there are a couple of ships turned turtle upside down, inverted in, 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 in the Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And the word goes up, does any man here know how to run a, a Momsen? And he was the only one who raised his hand. And so he spent like the next nine hours swimming through compartments of bunker oil, oh, pulling sailors out of, I think, the Utah one at a time. And uh, I I wasn't sure whether that was a true story or not until his after he died, his wife showed me this little engraved watch hull, like a Lord Elgin watch with no guts in it. With the name of every sailor he'd pulled out of that ship and engraved oh on it. It was a no gift to him from him. And he hated the Navy so much. He just, you know, he joined the Air Corps. He'd flown crop dusters in the 30s a little bit, so he already knew how to kind of fly. So he joined the Army Air Corps. Um, but that's Frank Petty's story. That's not my story. So I worked for that's him. That's a great story, though, man. Me, that's awesome. That, that, that's he like, taught me an awful lot. You could write he a, taught me how to tra- he taught me how to track men who don't have driver's licenses, aren't legally married, have never held an honest job, you know, shit like that, because he was a narcotics agent in the Pasadena police for 14 years. So it was great street level criminal investigation. And then I got 
picked up by the Pinkertons. There's a old private investigation company called the Pinkertons. Oh yeah. And I worked for them out of their Wilshire field office, just wider doing a uh, survey. Huh? Wider. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he wasn't working there anymore though. Uh, this was like 1980. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he's long so, gone by the end. So, no, no, it's good. It's, it's good. You know, so I did surveillance work and protective work, uh, undercover industrial stuff, uh, lots of situational investigations. The, 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 the Pinkerton service was really good. I did that off and on for several years and, it gave me a, a good name to have on my resume. Uh, I did some investigative work for Dun & Bradstreet, which is a commercial uh, accounting outfit, collections outfit. Um, I worked for a few different companies and um, went overseas a bit, doing a bit of private work. And um, I remember looking at one of the Pinkerton bills. Uh, they were billing me out at 120 an hour and paying me 14.50 an hour. <laughs> And it wasn't terrible wages, and I didn't resent it. I really didn't. I just thought, you know, that could be my 120 an hour. And so that was when I decided I'd entertain going into business for myself, and 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 I did. I got my license in 1992. 1992 is when you went into business for yourself, huh? So when you were with the Pinkertons. Uh, 29 years later. 29. So you worked, um, how long did you work with the Pinkertons? I was with them off and on for almost four years. About four years. And is is there any of the higher profile people that you got any stories on those that you might be able to tell us? This is being in the Pinkertons is a little bit like being in, uh, in human intelligence. And you can um, leave names out. Okay. I'll give you a good one. If you look at some of the early press conferences for when the Menendez brothers uh, had murdered their parents and they were still pretending to be, you know, uh, hapless victims in fear for their lives, right. they hired the Pinkertons to protect them. And uh, I'm in a couple of those press conferences along with a few other guys that I worked with. Um, okay. That's a good one. Okay. Uh, so we go back to some of the historical footage on, on those, these documentaries, and you might be in the in the background there? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know that we we did a lot of stuff there. There were there were some other cases that were noteworthy to us that mean nothing now. And then once once I went out on my own, I started getting some really good cases. And then in '97, I started working the Wonderland Avenue murders just because one of the guys I was working with had worked that case as a cop, and uh, he said it was the most frustrating case he ever had work, working homicide. And it was because uh, he and his partner, Tom Lang, were, were interfered with from, from the start. And, you know, they may one day write a book of their own. And I don't want to take anything away from what it is that they're doing. But I'll say I learned a hell of a lot from Lang and Sousa. Bob Sousa was the guy I was working with. Mm -hmm. They were fantastic guys. And, and I was really privileged to have that association with them. Have they and not the written years, a book? Because there's been movies and all kinds of things about that. Um, yeah, I know, but those I will guys tell haven't, you that they haven't done anything it yet. only touches on a small bit of it. Gotcha. You know, the big story in the Wonderland Avenue murders isn't the murders as much as it is. How was it covered up? How did the man behind it avoid getting meaningfully prosecuted for 19 motherfucking years? He was first identified, Ed Nash was first identified as an organized crime suspect in Los Angeles 
in an intelligence bulletin in 1952. And the first men to ever arrest Ed Nash for anything on any charge for any reason on any day were Tom Lang and Bob Sousa, arrested him on drug charges. So for our listeners who don't aren't familiar with the Wonderland um, murders, uh, Brian, you want to you wanna talk about that? You want to fill them in on what that is? Well, you know, I was trying to remember what the whole deal was, and my only exposure to it is actually through Boogie Nights, which means I know fuck all about it. So uh, They, they yeah. touched on it in that movie, but there was a movie about it, and that's the only exposure that I've got to it. And I'm sure, you know, being Hollywood's spin on it, it's, you know, probably okay, well, this, this, 20% this is percent what I accurate. can tell you about the Wonderland murders. There was a group of, of heroin addicts living in Laurel Canyon called the Wonderland Gang, loosely. And instead of robbing um, mom and dad, you know, liquor store owners, whatever, they'd go out and they'd stick up drug dealers mostly, which is, which is high risk. But yeah. high risk brings high reward, lots of cash and lots of dope, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so... One of their regular dope customers was an adult film star by the name of John Curtis Holmes. John the Wad. John, John, John got cut off. You know he didn't. You know he didn't pay his dope bill to the dope man. And the dope man, he says to them, "Look, if I set up a nice, nice lick for you boys, will you split it with me?" And so they said, "Sure, why not?" So Holmes goes over to Ed Nash's house and buys a little dope, and then leaves the sliding door unlocked. And the Wonderland guys come in at, you know, 5.30 in the morning with guns drawn. And they pistol whip Ed Nash and his bodyguard and make him open the floor safe in his closet and rob him and threaten him and call him a piece of shit. And they take all of his dope and his money and everything else. So then they go back to Wonderland Avenue, which is about a mile and a half away from Nash's house, to split things up. And there's, there's Holmes wanting his share. So they give him you know, a couple of ounces of cocaine and $2,000 and tell them to hit the road. Okay. And I think they got like six or seven kilos of cocaine and, and $200,000 in cash and half a pound of heroin and a few guns and, you know, that kind of thing. And in 1981, that was a pretty good haul. That's on a, a good robbery. haul. Hell yeah. So, uh, Holmes went somewhere and to a motel or something and smoked his cocaine and bought some more cocaine and smoked that. And then when he was out, Holmes went to Nash and said, Hey, I know who robbed you. Oh shit. Oh no. Right. So Nash, in order to test the information made Holmes go along with the other guys to go get the money drugs back and, and to, to, to break heads. And uh, Holmes' palm print was found on the brass bedstead above uh, Ron Launius, one of the dead bodies. Ron Launius was part of the Wonderland gang, and he was also a suspected hitman. Oh, shit. Yeah. So and they I killed four, get, what, four people? I won't get into all that with you. You know, uh, suspected. You know, he was never convicted of being a hitman, but uh, there he was, dead, wasn't he? And at one time... Uh, Launius being much shorter than Holmes, I think Launius was 5'7 or 5'8, and Holmes was like 6'2. Launius would neutralize him by uh, pulling his gun out and pointing it at Holmes' crotch and telling him, now pull your dick out, donkey dick, and let the girl see it. 
you know, just to get the whole thing over with, you know, to take all the novelty off of, you know, uh, somebody having a dick uh, two feet long or whatever. And uh, Holmes was afraid of him for some reason. Um, for so, some reason. That's pretty, pretty damn good reason. You gotta, now, now Longus was Christ. reputed to have spent a little time in jail for uh, smuggling heroin back from Vietnam and the cadavers of dead U.S. servicemen. Oh. And uh, Launius was reputed to have been an enforcer for one of the motorcycle gangs, even though he wasn't a biker himself, and a whole lot of stuff like that. Ron Launius was the kind of guy who had the reputation as being nuts up. He wasn't afraid of anyone or anything at any time, and he was always ready to go. Now, was this so uh, this uh, murder solved, or is it a, was it a cold case? Did they ever pin it on the the dude? What was well, his name? On Ed Nash? Nash, yeah, on Nash. Well, Nash bought one jury, and then the judge overseeing his second trial, you know, after the first first jury got hung, he uh, the judge wouldn't allow certain information in, and the case fizzled, and, and Nash got acquitted in 1989 or 1990 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I worked it from 97 to 2000 and finally identified a witness who was clean in the sense that she didn't have a warrant out for something when she turned state's evidence. And she went in front of a federal grand jury and the FBI and LAPD finally took over with the IRS. And what Nash went to prison for was was RICO, criminal RICO, racketeering. And it involved murder, murder for hire, arson for hire, drug dealing, uh, jury fixing, wit- witness tampering, you know, wow. all of that stuff. And so he took a plea because he was an old man, but everybody knew that Nash had finally been nailed. And, you know, that was a good thing. I mean, so so that that case kind of put my put me on the map. I mean, that made my my career. And after that, my phone started ringing much better than it had been ringing before. I'll tell you that, man. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh-huh. what were some other cases that you worked on? Oh, any more other high profile ones like that? Well, there was a guy named Patterson Hayton, who was an Australian financier. Yeah, he was a flamboyant uh, guy involved in publicly traded companies and was always being sued for something. And I forget what I even was first investigating him for, but uh, who allegedly hired a hitman or a couple of hitmen to murder his wife's boyfriend who was a member of his polo team. He had a string of polo ponies out in La Quinta, out by Palm Springs and up in Santa Barbara. Pattinson Hayton was quite a character. This thing with him hiring somebody, uh, hiring two guys to murder his wife's boyfriend was a lot of fun. And uh, the Riverside sheriffs were working that, and so was I. And then Hayton fled to England to try to avoid having to talk to anyone. He was one of those guys who, if you cornered him, he would cry, even if he was trying to kick your ass. He was a very strange man. And uh, I once saw him eat a martini glass at a party to show that he could. He was a pretty tough guy in that sense. So are you, you're you currently licensed. You're still licensed as a PI, still doing the private investigation work. Um, started this back in 92, is that what you said? That's correct. Around 1992, so uh, very experienced. And in in that time um, that you've built your agency, do you have do you have other investigators that you've uh, hired on, or is it just you, still a one man team? In 
in Los Angeles is that there is a vast pool of various operatives who work for different agencies uh, under contract or as needed because it's always feast or famine. Either there's a lot of work or there's no work. And you have to be very judicious in who you hire to do field work for you because not everybody is good at it and not everybody is ethical. Sure. And I'll give you some examples. What if you hire a guy who's a really good surveillance uh, operator who's got a fast little compact car and lots of video cameras and does a really good job of ca- capturing imagery and then if you're working a high-profile case, sells the same images to three different paparazzi in addition to working for you. Yeah, unethical, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you got to be really careful about who you hire. What if you hire uh, five or six off-duty police officers to do a protective job at a financial institution where there have been threats made, And then long after the threats have been made, more threats start coming in from pay phones around the county. And you're paying these off-duty cops $40, $50 an hour to do this protective work. And you start wondering if, what if one of these off-duty cops is now the one making the, the, the calls in order to keep the money coming in? I don't know that that happened, but I heard about it with another agency. And it's a sort of thing where you got to carefully vet the men who and women who work for you. Sometimes women make really great operatives for different things. Sure. Uh, not always. And the same thing for men. There's some things men can't do. So you got you got to always use good judgment. And over the years, I've worked out like my own selection process for who's likely to make it and on what level uh, and in what context. And it involves mostly uh, emotional toughness followed by intellectual reasoning. What I mean by emotional toughness is the rarest of human emotional qualities is the ability to deal with ambiguity under stress. That's what Navy Special Warfare is trying to identify by making a bunch of 20-year-old SEAL recruits swim in the surf in 60-degree weather for 48 hours. is They're just trying to identify emotional toughness. They, they know that they can train any healthy male to any physical standard that they need to, but they cannot inculcate emotional toughness in men who don't have it. So they, they're looking to eliminate the guys who don't have the emotional toughness. So... A couple of times I hired men, uh, or uh, once a woman had a brand new car, college educated, could read, could write a report, could could read any book I gave them as homework, that sort of thing, but could not connect the dots on an investigation and could not see it from start to finish. And then I had some kid come in about 22 years old with a greasy ponytail and I didn't like the way that he looked and he smelled like nicotine and I'm like, okay. And I was just at that point where I had 10 different things I needed done and I thought, okay, I'll give him the test and and either I'll get rid of him or he'll be really good at it. And I gave him this thing where I needed him to find an old murder conviction down in the county archive and and get, get me a copy of it. And he came back six hours later with a certified copy of the murder conviction. So I gave him a couple of subpoenas to serve, and he served the came back 
two, three days later asking for money, had signed proofs of service. I could tell that he'd done the work. And I never liked the dirt under the fingernails and the, you know, smelling of, uh, of an ashtray and unwashed clothing and that sort of thing. And uh, then uh, I had his pager number and I'd page him and it'd take him three hours to get to my office. And I asked him, Mike, why does it take you so goddamn long to get to my office when I paid you? And he said, because I'm riding the bus. I bought him a car. I bought the man a car. I, I went down and I bought a beater uh, 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 and, and gave it to him, for fuck's sake. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I worked with him off and on for four years before the, the drinking and, uh, and whatever overtook him. Yeah. And I don't know where he is now. I hope he's given up the alcohol. Because he was damn good in the field. He wasn't the guy you want to introduce to the client. But if you need a guy to sneak under somebody's greasy good car and put a guy. sensor on it at yeah. 3 in the morning, he's, the, he's your, you want somebody to creep someone's garbage every fucking Monday morning at 4 a.m., he's your man. You want him to follow someone relentlessly and never lose them, he's your man. All right? In that, in so, that beater car you bought him. <laughs> and, right, and so... For you younger employees out there who are not in management positions, what Nils is identifying is, you know, for, for a lot of folks, they actually don't care how much money they have to pay you. And the, the interesting thing is, from a management perspective, paying people more money doesn't generally get better results. And so if you can demonstrate to a manager that you're the kind of guy Nils is talking about and you find the right boss, there's virtually nothing that you can't do and no limit to how much money you can make. And so many people are just friggin' worthless in a job and, and the money, it, the money does not matter. And so if you've got a competency and you can line up on somebody like Nils, you know, giving that guy a car, it's a big thing that I think you've identified there, Nils, that like, if you find your sweet spot, good Lord, are you valuable? Oh, it's a well, great well, opportunity okay, that so you offered that guy. Yeah. Okay. So most recently, uh, I've had a couple of people come to me. One, one was a quote unquote housewife and helped her husband running, run a, a plumbing business. And she was really sharp. She knew business and she knew people inside and out. And she's done a little bit of work for me. Once she got over the hurdle of having things explained, she was pretty much a self-starter. Um, and she had the emotional toughness because she'd grown up with a bunch of brothers and she'd managed her husband's business. They were divorced and that sort of thing. And, you know, she's the sort of person, if you put her onto something, you don't have to, add, you know, give her too much guidance because she's a torpedo. You drop her in the water and she runs till she hits the target. So uh, two others over the last 10 years, one was uh, from Europe, uh, spoke English fluently, though, as well as his native tongue, and uh, looked bookish like he was a college teacher or something like that. But I noticed he was in really good physical shape. And I asked him, what do you do to stay physically fit? And he said to me, oh, I have uh, black belts and two martial arts. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been working at martial arts since I was 13 or 14, and I teach other men how to box. Nice. You know, that's emotional toughness right there, the ability to, to go through and then move to a foreign country where, where they speak a language other than your primary language and support yourself and, and that sort of thing. 
So he's he's invaluable uh, when I when I actually have a case for him to work. He's great. He's put himself through law school since I met him. He oh, went wow. to one of those uh, night law schools for law clerks and cops, and he's he's going to take the. He'll be a lawyer eventually. He'll be a good okay? asset for Another you. Another yeah. one. Definitely. An- another one comes to me. He's a very handsome guy. He presents himself well. He's always immaculately dressed. I first met him. He was uh, the manager of a client company where some embezzlement was going on. So he saw me break down three employees and get full confessions from them on tape recording while he while he proctored the interrogations and he saw how I did it. And a week after I concluded the case, he called me up and he said, I want to have coffee with you. So I go to coffee with this guy. He's immaculately dressed. He tells me he used to be an actor, that sort of thing. And he says, I'll tell you, I'm miserable doing what it is that I do. And I'd like to do what it is that you do. And I said to him, look, it's not that easy. Uh, you got to bring something to the table. Tell me something about yourself. That, and he started rattling off how curious he was, how he was this, how he was that. And I'm, my eyes are rolling back in my head. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, don't waste my fucking time. And then he says to me, I'm a pretty good driver. And I said, a driver? And he says, yeah, I was a race car driver for seven years. <laughs> I buried the lead. All of those <laughs> All of that stunt track work where you see a Toyota Corolla doing 160 miles an hour with its tires on fire for some stupid car commercial. I'm the guy who did it. <laughs> and I made made him get me in, in my car and drive my car at 140 miles an hour on the Foothill Freeway. And sure enough, he even took it up on the fucking shoulder, right? <laughs> he wasn't kidding. <laughs> okay, so if you can take a Toyota Corolla into that fucking turn at 160 miles an hour, you've got nuts. You've, you've got emotional toughness. Most men can't do that. No matter how drunk they are, they can't do it. Even if they're <laughs> running from, from their mother-in-law, they can't do that <laughs> shit, okay? And, yeah, he was he was an actor. He looks really good. You know, he, he polishes up nicely. He's got a beautiful wife. So does the guy from Europe. They both have beautiful wives. So these, you know, this is an example of the kind of men who they bring something to the table. I don't have to tell when I, when I tell one of these guys, I want this person followed. I want you to identify everybody that they meet with. I want you to exploit any opportunity to learn more about them, but I never want you to be made. And this is something a client will never understand. It's better to lose the mark than to be made by the mark. And, and a client never wants to hear that. Just like in Brian's business, they never want to hear that you were unable to perfectly center the stock because it was it was uh, an oblique piece that, that couldn't be centered. They don't want to hear that because you're a you're a genius. You're supposed to be able to. How, how, what do you mean you fucked up this this project? Right? Okay. It is better to lose the subject and reacquire him than to have the subject know he is being watched. Yep. And. The essence of it is to make your case without the without the motherfucker knowing that he's been made until he's already bent over and horse fucked. Okay. <laughs> I dig it. So you've been doing yeah. this for thirty years. Coming up, uh, coming up on thirty years. You've been in L.A. since uh, how long? How long have you been in in uh, Los Angeles, California? Probably entirely too long. It's starting to look pretty good to me, this place. Everybody's on the make, on the take, and half-baked. 
they're a yard wide and an inch deep. Well, that's kind of why I'm asking this because you you were there before you know it turned into the shithole that it is right now. You know when it was a pretty it was okay, a pretty so good place to live. The Los Angeles Republicans died with Charlton Heston and Daryl Gates. There, there yeah. used to be some rugged individuals in this city, running this city, doing things in this city. We even had homosexuals who were rugged individuals. I mean, look at Rock Hudson. Guys would make jokes about Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson was a was was a man's man's man, if you'll pardon me for making a funny <laughs> joke. You know, we we we've had some fantastic guys in this in this city. Some outstanding, beautiful women. I mean, look at Angie Dickinson. Oh yeah, uh, love Angie Dickinson. You know, she's she's almost ninety and she still looks so good. You drink her bath water, right? <laughs> I haven't seen her lately, okay. but back in the day, boy, yeah, Angie Dickinson was the well, shit. Okay, so go take a look, man. You're not going to turn her down. It's not like she's calling you anyway. Well, I mean, just because she's Angie Dickinson, <laughs> I would definitely not turn her down. I'm going to I'm gonna Google her. Go ahead. Right. Like I, like, like, like I said, the, this, this city was crawling with attractive, interesting women and men who had done things. Yeah, go go through the the casting call of any major film from 1945 to 1990, and most of the men and women cast in those films were people who had really done things. Some of the men were combat veterans. Um, you, you can you know Jimmy Stewart is a great example. Uh, Charles Bronson. Um, they were people who had taken risks, who had really done things. And and now we have a lot of people who, who want credit uh, just because they got up and combed their hair this morning. Okay, so there she is, uh, eighty something years old, and she's still beautiful. Oh yeah, you know. There, there's nothing wrong with Angie Dickinson. Um, and Margaret is another one. Right? Oh, and Margaret, yes, absolutely uh, love Anne Ra Margaret. Ra Ra Raquel Welch, she she's she's gorgeous, right? Oh yeah. Right. Well, so, and, and I hadn't actually heard of Angie Dickinson. I'm a couple of years younger than you guys, and uh, but Faye Dunaway is the one that immediately comes to mind with uh, uh, with Angie Dickinson. And holy mo, yeah, this just, is Raquel Welch. Mm. How about how about how about uh, Charlotte Rampling? That's she's one an I English do woman, not know, but she's been in Hollywood forever. Charlotte Rampling. If you want to see her completely nude, check out <laughs> Zardoz. She's naked with uh, with Sean Connery for half the film. Oh, here she yeah. is, about seventy five years old, up here in the upper row. Yeah, right here. I had no. I've only seen her as an old lady. Holy mackerel! Oh, no, back in the show. day. Back in the day, the movie he's yeah. talking about with Sean Connery. Yeah, she's a she's a knockout. She's got those eyes. Right. She's got those seductive. Okay. Eyes. So, so Los Angeles was crawling with women like that. And, and the men were people who had done things. You know, it's like that thing I was telling you about how during World War II, the sick and the lame would pretend to be healthy and, and capable in order to be one of those guys. And now they fake ethics and they fake concern so that they can avoid being one of those guys, you know? We've got a bunch of guys who are a vogue on the outside and vague on the inside, right? Yeah. What What has Matt Damon ever done? What has Sean Penn ever fucking done? Other than suck El Chapo's dick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, 
it's an interesting it's an interesting crisis that we're in. Right there, you, there, there. Sean Penn needs a, his hair needs an oil change. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he 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 looks like he looks like that guy who's uh, James Bond. Uh, da- he looks like Daniel Craig's retarded brother or something, right? <laughs> uh, um, I mean, what's Matt Damon ever done other than cry? Get up and boohoo about shit, and and uh, try to promote socialism for working people while he sends his children to a hundred thousand dollar a year private school. Fuck him, you know. Well, to also to make your your living in shoot 'em up movies and to be anti gun yeah. is something that I I have a very hard time with. Well, he's not um, he's not anti gun for whoever's protecting him. I promise you that. Oh, uh, you know, we we agree. You know, uh, I promise you, it's not Diane Feinstein's Chinese intelligence officer uh, limo driver protecting Sean Penn on the weekend, or Hillary Clinton's. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, at at the risk of making a digression, um, there there are some some uh, data points that I would be interested in your thoughts on. One is Epstein being an intelligence asset. Another is the revelation that uh, Charles Manson was a CIA asset and that the, the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic was actually a uh, sort of a, uh, black site's the wrong word for it, but a, a, a CIA um, front, basically, where they were doing um, a, a bunch of experience with LSD, but, but also other experiments that were pretty not cool. And within a, a week or so of that accusation being made, that clinic shut down after something like 40 years or 50 years and um, in, in, in operation. And then you made some other, you know, veiled references earlier with Wonderland. Uh, between Epstein, Manson, and others, what do you make of, of, the, of the intelligence community in the U.S.? doing really wacky shit and do you think there's going to be a reckoning at some point you know certainly kennedy was trying to 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 cause that reckoning uh prior to his demise um you have any thoughts on that 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 you're you know willing to share publicly which cia are we talking about the pre-rockefeller commission cia uh, or are we talking about the cia as it existed prior to Stansfield Turner and Jimmy Carter firing 700 covert operatives and jockstrap commandos who, who formed the nut and core of the trigger-pulling, vine-swinging savages that kept us safe at night. Uh, you know, uh, they turned CIA from 1977 forward into an analysis-heavy organ from an operations-heavy organ. And when you become an analysis-heavy organ, you're combing through great big steaming piles of shit looking for undigested kernels to, re, to, to cook over again, to, to feed to everyone. Are we talking about the CIA that failed to see that the Ayatollah Khomeini was going to overrun the American embassy in Tehran in 1979? Are we talking about the CIA 
that couldn't predict the uh, Beirut barracks bombing, or if they did, they didn't give a fuck in, in 1983 and let 250 Marines die. Are we talking about the CIA that couldn't foretell Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait, even though Saddam Hussein is being characterized as a CIA asset off and on? Are we talking about the CIA that's been accused of uh, trafficking in crack cocaine in uh, inner city America to fund uh, Central American operations? Are we talking about the CIA that uh, uh, couldn't foretell 9-11 but can tell you that Donald Trump has betrayed you and is doing horrible things with Ukraine and uh, with uh, and uh, probably some Cuban guy running a shoe shine parlor in Miami right now. That CIA? Are we talking about that? What, what, would it be uh, more? Would it be better to characterize the CIA as an asset of Manson than Manson and the CIA? Why not introduce their Felch sister cousins in the in the FBI to this mix? Didn't the FBI have? Oswald under surveillance on the day that he slaughtered the last decent Democrat to hold office as a president. Didn't wasn't he under surveillance that day? Isn't that the 27 key pages there shall be forever redacted so that the FBI doesn't look like they don't know what the fuck they're doing? Uh, they they may have had Oswald under surveillance that day. I mean, a few weeks before, he tried to murder General Walker with the same rifle. He visited the Soviet embassy and the Cuban embassy in Mexico City. They certainly had him under surveillance for that. Uh, we know that for, for, for doggone certain. I don't even have to be a counterintelligence agent to know that that occurred. I mean, it's in it's on wiki fucking Pedia, for fuck's sake, okay? <laughs> So, so while he's under surveillance, the FBI can't piece that together. So after murdering that American president, Oswald takes off on foot and uh, goes to the movies. And on his way to the movies, he murders a Dallas police officer with a 38 special and then sits in a movie theater beating his dick or something for 15 minutes, 45 minutes, waiting for who? Who was he waiting for? Was he waiting for Ralph Nader? Was he waiting for Gore Vidal? Was he waiting for Tim McVeigh? No, he was waiting probably for a Cuban or Russian case officer who was listening to the news and realized an American president had just been killed and that their crazy operative in the United States uh, pr uh, probably was too hot to handle any longer, okay? Um, the, the conspiracy is there, but it's not as it has been spun so, so many times of a magic bullet theory and a stranger on a grassy knoll and the CIA killing him. The CIA couldn't find its ass with both hands and a butt-sniffing dog, okay? Um, it was Oswald, an American communist. If you want to know what Antifa looked like in 1963, Oswald's picture is right there for you to see. That was Antifa in 1963. Oswald was a fucking communist. And so what destroyed the Democrat Party and converted it from, from a political party into a cult was their shared willingness to lie. They lied to each other about the nature of Oswald and the nature of the man that he murdered. Okay? Mm -hmm. That is what destroyed the Democrat Party. This mutually assured lying where I won't call you on your lie and don't you dare call me on mine. And then we have his younger brothers, the one who ordered uh, Hoover to wiretap MLK. All right. 
Hoover didn't wiretap Martin Luther King without the attorney general telling him to. Uh, Bobby Kennedy signed off on every one of those wiretap warrants. And speaking of surveillance, you're probably aware that Martin Luther King was under surveillance by the FBI at the moment he was killed. Yeah. That's why the FBI was on the scene so fast. They weren't down the street looking at a bank robbery and got the call on the radio, oh, somebody shot MLK. They had the man under surveillance on the day that he was murdered. I didn't then, know that. That's why well, I knew he was under generally under surveillance. I didn't realize. That why he would was they there. make an exception? Why would they make an exception for that day? No. I mean, what, el- what else was the what else was the FBI fucking well doing in Memphis, Tennessee, on the day the man was murdered? Okay, mm-hmm. you can argue um, endlessly whether King was a good man, a righteous man, a faithful man. Uh, good for the country, bad for the country, that sort of thing. He had some dumb ideas and he had some great ideas. I mean, um, I don't hate Martin Luther King. And I understand why black America would be pissed off and paranoid for 50 motherfucking years after the man was killed. Okay. Sure. That, yeah. I, you know, it's it, nobody has to explain it to me. Who took, the, who took these pictures of, of Jesse Jackson and the other black activists pointing in the direction the gunfire came from if it wasn't the FBI. Okay. Mm. All right. So, you know, those are questions I have. And, and James Earl Ray, one of the biggest liars in the history of the country, he, he admitted to it. Then he denied it. He admitted to it. Then he denied it. And then he made up things about working for the Klan, that sort of thing. Let me ask you a question. How many faithful Roman Catholics have you ever seen in the Ku Klux Klan post-1920? Not one. The, the Klan was, was anti-Roman Catholic. The Klan styled itself a, a, um, a, a uh, Masonic organization. Uh, James mm. Earl Ray would have been anathema to the Ku Klux Klan. I've got a better idea who, who, who Ray may have been working for. There was an organization that killed Malcolm X uh, sometime in the same general time period, and it wasn't the Ku Klux Klan, and it wasn't the CIA, and it wasn't Oswald. Oswald was already dead. So what if what if the Nation of Islam killed Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, the men who posed the greatest threat to their perceived political power in this country. Uh, You know, that invisible empire among black America was uh, the nation of Islam. Elijah Muhammad wanted to rule black America, uh, make it a separate state, a separate nation. Okay, And, and, and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were both vehemently opposed to that. That is an understanding that I have is that that MLK was not in favor with other black civil rights leader at the time of his killing other leaders that is at the time of his killing that he was, he was kind of on his way down in some sense. And I don't know the particulars of it, but it wasn't like it was one big happy coalition. I I don't know that that's true or untrue. Mm. You know, it's kind of like the day that Elvis died. Everybody who had been criticizing him for 30 years was suddenly kissing his ass. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. when you're at the top of the heap, you have a lot of people shooting at you, sniping at you, or trying to curry favor with you. So it's impossible to know after the fact, right? Sure. And then take a look at Bobby Kennedy's killing. Who killed Bobby Kennedy, an American leftist of Palestinian origins, right? Mm-hmm. Who killed Bobby Kennedy? Sirhan Bashara Sirhan, still in jail, right? 
people there are people around Los Angeles who swear that Sirhan didn't do it, even though I've seen the 4473 Sirhan filled out to buy his 22 revolver. Uh, he had an eight-shot 22 revolver. How, how come there were nine shots fired? There weren't nine shots fired. The the bullets fragmented. Okay. Never believe that a 22 isn't lethal. There's a mm-hmm. man murdered with a 22 right there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby more people Kennedy are killed with a 22 than any other round. JFK was. Huh? I said more people are killed with a 22 than any other round. I believe that's that that to be true. They don't respect it. They don't. They don't see what a what a dangerous thing it is. But uh, so Bobby Kennedy wasn't the man that JFK was, and Teddy Kennedy was even less. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So so therein is the decline of the Democrat Party. It became a cult. Now they now they put up men for president on the strength of their loyalty to to uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, Barack Obama is probably the most destructive man who has held the presidency since uh, Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. You know, he burned Ferguson, Missouri to the ground to reform ACORN as Black Lives Matter. He is the author of that. He is the hidden hand behind Antifa. Never, never think it is anybody other than Barack Hussein Obama. It's been interesting to watch him criticize BLM and say the quiet parts out loud. Um, you know, that you don't, you know, he, he basically told them, you don't say this stuff with the front of your face. You say it out the side. And um, it's been interesting to watch him coaching and critiquing. And it's not that he's against them. It's that he, he thinks their strategy isn't, um, you know, he's a very clever individual in some regards. And uh, that that strategy and the, the cloaking real radicalism um, with a, a veil of decency is, is, yeah, it's quite a trick. That's the grease on the dildo, my friend. That's <laughs> where the thing is, okay? Um, and b- b- behind closed doors, he's, he's the one pulling the strings, him and, him and assholes like Eric Holder. You know, Eric Holder is just as destructive as baby Lord Husseino. For the years leading up to Eric Holder becoming attorney general, he was representing terrorist scumbags in in Guantanamo Bay trying to get them freed. Okay. Um, You know, they abused the FISA system. They abused the Internal Revenue Service. The Democrat, there's nothing they can't do. there's, There's no law they can't break. Look at Adam Schitt. Uh, 20 years ago, you'd see all these little leftist assholes marching in the streets claiming that they were all for civil liberties uh, and decrying the Patriot Act. Who wrote the Patriot Act? Adam Schitt, who sucks his dick now, the hard left. Yeah, that was um, I was raised Democrat and for, you know, regrettably thought well of the man for a while before I realized what was up. And that was when the blinders really came off is when Snowden, the revelations of Snowden came to light. And I was like, wait a second here. Obama had plenty of time to stop this in its tracks. He had plenty of time to close down Gitmo. He had plenty of time to stop drone striking little kids. And he did none of those things, you know, he, he, well, and, but you know, you can't, they've got very good propaganda and the people that are stuck in that cult, there's some good people in there, but if you only listen to NPR and MSM, 
you don't get the truth. And they've done a fantastic job of obscuring the, the truth. The media drives their getaway car. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's a brilliant way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used yeah. to think that the media was part of the Democrat cult. Now I see that the Democrat cult is actually part of the media infotainment complex. Mm-hmm. There's nothing they can't say or do. They can do anything. They can call you a terrorist for visiting the United States Capitol on January 6th and lock you up in solitary confinement. And, and call know, it peaceful prote- protesting in uh, Missouri. Right, right. So, you know, uh, I what I consider sacrosanct is some guy's Seven Eleven or tire store in Minneapolis that gets burned to, burned to the ground by a leftist mob. Okay, the United States Capitol is being burned before. It's always burned by people who truly hate the country. Right? Uh, th- those protesters didn't burn the United States Capitol. All right. Um, I consider some guy's private business to be sacrosanct. The United States Capitol is a functional whorehouse now. You know, it could use it could use some some cleaning out. You know, he's a little. You know, the fact that the Pelosi afraid of the guy with the helmet and horns took a dump in her bidet for fuck's sake. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that the president yesterday or the day before I've lost track said that he's going to reinstate the ban on evictions and that it doesn't pass const- that he doesn't think it'll pass constitutional muster, but he's doing it anyway. I feel like that should be for anybody that had any um, scruples remaining about who we're dealing with. Um, okay. Or any any doubt that of the motivations of people like that, you know, if, if like if, if if you're a conservative or a lover of uh, a lover of of America or a lover of liberty, and you think the Constitution matters in a discussion with the Democrat, and I and I don't mean a, a good-hearted liberal, I mean a Democrat at this point, you're out of your fucking mind. Because if the Democrats weren't out there protesting when the, the, the president said, I don't care, it, they were cheering, basically, when he said it violates, the, it, that it won't pass constitutional muster. You He's know, the that man. Is, he, he, he perfectly reflects what it is that they believe in value, Brian. So, so let me ask you a question. Let's talk about our friends, the libertarians, right? As a political organization, not not the libert individual libertarians uh, that, that you, you mean and I might know. Big L libertarians. That's how right. I understand. Are, how quick are they to embrace every single tool of authoritarian oppression used, as long as it's not immediately used on them? Okay. I have well, zero respect for them as a political organization. They, uh, you know, they're 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 even more destructive than the weakling, feckless GOP that won't lift a finger as long as they get to dip their sweaty jowls in the trough from time to time. You know, we've got yep. we've got little finger running the United States Senate temporarily. Uh, with with the blessings of his of his Chinese wife, wonderful Mitch. You know we get it. You you, you uh, we're over you too. Okay, so um, I mean, so we keep voting for these. Look at Trey Gowdy. He was one of the biggest disappointments ever elected to the United States Congress. You know, Daryl Issa is more of a man than than Trey Gowdy for fuck's sake. 
know? All right, and they just I'm gonna dial this back, guys. This is great and I love it, but I I we're running short on time. And we haven't even got into into your books yet, dude. <laughs> so I want to get into your books uh, and where we're headed. Um, but definitely we got to have you back on and continue this on the political side because we don't talk a lot of politics on this show. Uh, but when we do sure, get a, do when we do get somebody as savvy as you, uh, we definitely want to have you back and, and go down that route again. But let's talk about your book. So the the PI, you know, you've been doing that for thirty years. Uh, when did your your writing career begin? Well, I, I started writing to amuse myself. I wrote my first crime novella in a in a Copenhagen hotel room while I was waiting for two hookers to show up to, <laughs> to, to be interviewed. Not to they were witnesses to a kidnapping. Listen, listen to Brian laughing. You know. <laughs> so, well, you got to understand, Nils. I. I got married at 21 and, and you happen to know my wife and she, you know, I've been smart enough to hang on to her and not cheat on her because she'd fucking kill me. And so, uh, all these, these, got you. yeah, yeah. And so all these discussions of hookers in Copenhagen and, you know, car chases, it's like, man, my misspent adulthood being responsible, but please continue. Okay. So, so, you know, I just wrote these at first to amuse myself, and then I was going to throw them away, and my editor, Holly Clearman, talked me out of deleting them, and she helped me put them together, and uh, we found uh, a way to publish them. They're published. Um, I, I wrote Horseplay and Suicide Jack as full-size uh, novels, and I'm still working on another crime novel, but um, right now, I'm getting ready to publish a flip book, a double political satire, which is one thing on one side, and then you flip it over, and it's the other thing on the other side. Uh, Tom Wolfe did this with Radical Chic and Mau Mauing the Flat Catchers. Okay. So I've written one that is a satire of politics and entertainment and media in California called the pig pen that fell from grace with the gods. And then the other one that I wrote is like a synopsized TV series uh, in print form about a Cholo street gang in East Los Angeles with ties to the district attorney's office called Barrio Gascon. And um, it's just salty satire i'm sure i'll have people wanting to kill me for writing them and publishing <laughs> them but that's what i'm gonna fucking well do when right? did you write your first book i think i i think uh the first one was four on the floor which i held in abeyance which was about the wonderland avenue murders and i never published it because of a publishing dispute and, you know it'll probably never be published hmm. but uh, the, that was that was 1998, 99, and then in 2002 I wrote uh, City of Devils. So um, is that a know, fiction? That, that, that's yeah. Is that a fiction? But it took me years to get around to actually writing anything. Most writing is shit. Most most uh, crime authors just lard up their stories with these ridiculous like you up in the los angeles times now there are only one or two good crime writers chris gofford is good and uh miles corwin when they can still get him to write anything for the times is damn good but most of them are just 
trying to get jobs writing screenplays. So you open up a crime story in the Los Angeles Times and it's, you know, Julio stored wistfully off into the distance, wondering what had happened to Martino. And uh, gunshots had rung out the night before, but gunshots are not unusual in this hard scrabble <laughs> immigrant community. They'll never tell you Martino is face down in the dust because he was a member of the fucking big hazard gang. And he stuck up the wrong motherfucker behind Jack in the box and got aired out. They'll never tell it to you like it is. Okay, right. I'll tell it to you like it is. Raymond Chandler did a really good job of writing things simultaneously oblique, but a punch in the gut. And Raymond Chandler is one of the best noir writers ever. I don't know if you've ever read The Lady in the Lake, but once you pick it up, you'll never put it down. It's that good. And here's how Raymond Chandler writes. I'll, 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 I'll just make something up for you. Okay. I rounded the top of the stairs on the third floor. I knew I was in the right building because of the smell of cigar butts and fried food that permeated the stairwell. I tried to approach carefully so the wooden floor wouldn't betray my approach, but I didn't have to because she was ready for me. Flickering beneath the half-open door was the blue glow of a television set, set to nothing in particular. And when I opened the door and rounded the corner, there she was. She was sitting behind a desk the size and shape of a coffin. She was smoking hashish in a brass pipe and doing her eyes. She looked up. She looked down. She said to me, I need a man. That's Raymond <laughs> Chen. <laughs> Bravo. That's Bravo. amazing. That was, now, did you do that just off the top of your head? Sort of. I'm borrowing from somebody else a little bit. Uh, I I'm plagiarizing just a bit. Okay, so, so um, here, I'll, I'll ad lib again, all right? So I met her. She was at Frank's office, but she was by herself. I didn't know what to do or what to say. And when she hung up the phone, I gave her a look. And she looked back at me as if she was checking for oncoming traffic. From my pocket, I fished out a bottle of rye, and I checked it if any was left. Usually there isn't, but we were in luck. She got a chipped coffee cup, and I upped the coffee cup with a bit of rye, and she laundered her tonsils, and she looked out the window as if maybe there was a chance, and then she looked back at me. She looked over her shoulders, and she asked me, can you help me with the zipper on the back of my dress? And I knew that the rest of my life was ruined. <laughs> I'm half hard now. I'm going to talk to Keeney about that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of, uh, since we're on the subject, what are your uh, feelings on Joseph Wambaugh? Is that right? The choir boys? Is that right? Uh, you know, uh, Joe Wambau is a demigod in the pantheon of of, of crime writers, American. Oh, really? European. oh, he's fantastic. And he, he put in the hard time on the streets. He was a Los Angeles cop for almost 15 years. Uh, he paid a little bit of a price, I think. If I had to guess, I'd say he might have even have a touch of uh, PTSD mm -hmm. from his from his work. Uh, he'd never admitted he's not that kind of man. Um Every single thing he's written has been nothing short of brilliant. Uh, when he wrote The Onion Field, he paid homage to Truman Capote, 
Capote had, had published uh, In Cold Blood, mm-hmm. and uh, Wombau was man enough to say that he was trying to emulate Capote, I think, without actually coming right out and, and saying it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Wombau's work is uh, self-analytical and deeply emotional. And if you ever wanted to know what keeps cops up at night, what makes cops eat their gun, what makes cops lose their families, uh, what makes cops obsessed about murderers and people like that, read, uh, read The Onion Field. It's probably one of the best books ever written. If I was going to create a list of the top 100 books ever written, I would include The Onion Field. I, definitely I, I, I can't wait to read scene. that. I only I only know about the choir boys, so I'll. Uh, but but Marty, to your uh, uh, your, your your remark earlier, there's a term in in uh, choir boys that I've not heard anywhere else, and that's a diamond cutter. A diamond cutter. The, yes, the hardest of hard ons is a I, diamond cutter. I got you. <laughs> that's when that motherfucker's harder than Armenian algebra, man. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just, I just had a chubby. A chubby's like, you know, halfway there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a semi lob on, the, but the, the, the diamond cutter is the gold standard of hard ons. That's and, like, that's, uh, yeah. that's not just a diamond cutter; it's a blue vein diamond cutter. Okay, <laughs> get, the get, blue get, vein. Get your nomenclature uh, correct there, Keeney. The blue I vein forever, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> so, do you have like a? Um, a hero in your novels? You got a recurring character, or is everything different every time you write a book? You have like a, well, you know, you know for like the a, for the for the crime novellas, it's being Luke Fitz. Luke Fitz, um, okay. Yeah, it's uh, you know just a private eye who drinks a bit. Um, some some people think, oh, it's based on me. It's not. I couldn't survive living like like the character lives. Um, he smokes cigars uh, when he wants to. He rides the bus if he has to. Uh, he gets laid occasionally. What you know? Even in his office, he might get laid. He gets the he gets the work done. Okay, so the the better question I think is what is the soul of noir? It's sentimental without ever being maudlin. It's never a tearjerker. And the characters are always really good men and women who who are compromised and flawed or they're really fucking bad and they might have one thing about them that would make you think twice before killing them mm. you know yeah the the moonlight crosses their face at the right angle and you think before you pull the trigger am i killing somebody's baby here and then you kill the motherfucker anyway because he needs it right um there has to be some motive for all of the fuckery and chicanery going on. And it's typically greed or it's ass or it's vanity. Somebody's been offended. Somebody's been hurt. Somebody's been betrayed on such a level that murder is the only antidote. Yeah. And, and then because people don't want to ever pay the price for what it is that they do, they create elaborate ways to evade and to avoid and, you know, and that's just, that's how those things go, right? Absolutely. Who would you say that your uh, favorite private detective is of all time? Um, fictional. 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 Jake Gitz in 
Chinatown is pretty near perfect. And it, it has to do with the way that Robert Town wrote the screenplay. Jack Nicholson helped him develop the character. And if you think about it, it's almost running against type. He's insouciant and pugnacious, and he doesn't give up easily. And he knows when he's in, in trouble, even when he doesn't know why or how he's in trouble. Uh, he knows how to take care of a client and keep his mouth shut, but he also knows when when something is afoot that he that he has to step forward and be more than just private, you know? Uh, it's it's a great fictional one. I think my favorite detective ever, though, uh, predates the wide use of detectives in police work. And he was both public and private. And that was the Pinkerton operative, Charles Seringo. Hmm. Charles Seringo wrote a book called The Cowboy Detective. And he died in... I think 1924 or 1928, he's buried in Inglewood. And uh, he was a man's man. He survived stampedes, stung by hornets, smallpox, gun battles, everything else. He knew Wyatt Earp. He knew Billy the Kid. He knew all of them. He was a been there, done that kind of guy. And uh, well, he was, was the name of that? to a, the profession. A cowboy detective? He never... Is this it? Yeah, the cowboy detective. He never soiled himself. He got in a fight with the Pinkertons. They didn't want him to write an expositive book, so he named the the Pinkertons the Dickinson Agency in the book, but everybody knows it's the Pinkertons. Uh, he was a great American all the way around. He once went out in Boise in 1907 and stood down a lynch mob of 100 drunk men with just a Colt revolver. Didn't shoot anybody, just went out and dispersed them. Curious on your opinion on this. Jack Nicholson is one of my all-time favorite actors. Chinatown probably is number two because the cuckoo's nest is just, or one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I know, the, just I such, know the movie and I know the book. Yeah, it's a, a both, and both are stunning. You know, it's one of the one of the very few times I think where you couldn't pick a favorite between the book and the movie. Um, do you think his greatness, and I don't know if you've ever met the man, you know, imagine being in LA that long and in the circles you do that you have some odd interactions with people, you know, he also clearly is fucking crazy. And <laughs> do you think he's brilliant or just crazy or is there a difference? Oh, um, I'd say that Nicholson is, uh, a brilliant child. Ah, that's in, an incisive in, comment. In in many ways, I, I I actually think his best movie of all is uh, The Last Detail. I've never seen it. Oh, it's it's stunning. Now oh. now Ken Kesey's book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and and the movie is the single best argument against government health care ever. Because oh, really yeah. what it's about is it's about an alcoholic locked up in a mental hospital who becomes annoying to the staff. And because of public medicine, because he's in a public hospital, their way of dealing with that alcoholic because he annoys them is to give him a frontal lobotomy. And mm -hmm. it's true. That's how they used to treat alcoholics. And it's the single best argument against state medicine. Best, this was the best they could do 
was was giving a lobotomy to to Randall McMurphy and the big chief throwing the drinking fountain through the window and running through the window, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Ken Kesey was a huge leftist and he didn't realize that he was indicting a system, indicting the thing that is often the holy grail for leftists. There was a time when leftists in this country were often rugged individuals who, who were deeply concerned about civil liberties, no longer. Now they are just statist, collectivist, authoritarians. They are Felch sister Karens of the worst variety. Well, yeah, there, there's a giant difference between, you know, a dope-growing hippie up in Humboldt County, you know, who, who might identify as being on the left, um, but doesn't have much regard for uh, official authority. And, you know, an L.A., leftist that it just wants to run everybody's lives you know it, san, it, I, san francisco is the grand center of gravity in california everything is run out of san francisco now by a bunch of collectivist communists artfully disguised as good government democrats there mm -hmm. are no more good government democrats mm -hmm. yep so yep. so nails um you've got how many books out now are, are they all oh, available on three or Amazon? Four. I don't know, man. I lost count. You can go on Amazon. Don't waste your money, man. Oh, buy on. City of Devils and buy uh, Suicide Jack, and it'll satisfy your curiosity. And then you'll say, I'm never reading anything this motherfucker ever wrote ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to talk Sabo into doing a cover for uh, the pig pen that fell from grace with the gods. And I can't get him to do it. I mean, uh, he's busy doing other things. He's a great man. You know who Sabo is, right? I'm looking it up right now. I don't know. He's Sabo, the street artist, S-A-B-O. Oh. oh, right. Yeah. No, totally. I don't know who that is. Who's Sabo? You know, the uh, there's a, from back in the day, Santa Cruz Skateboards had a um, a blue hand with a mouth on it lunging out as if it was eating you like a monster and that's Sabo. I've never seen that. Okay, so he's a counterculture guy, but uh he's friends with uh Roger Miller. Oh, okay. Mm. Well here's some of his stuff. Oh, I got it up. Right we wanna buy his art. I there is a toilet seat with Barack Obama's mouth as the right. hoop. Right, of course. <laughs> Talking about baby Lord Husseino, the golden child. Oh man, how have I never met or heard of this guy? He has, there's a, another one for the listeners out there. There's a basketball hoop that uh, has uh, Joe Biden yelling at you uh, from the backboard, and it says, Make this shot or you ain't black. <laughs> and, uh, that's, you know, alluding to, you know, Joe Biden's earlier. Uh, campaign speech saying that if you could, if you were wondering whether to to vote for him or Trump, that you, then you ain't black. Which right. the fact that that it's just disgusting that you it's know patron that, it's patronizing bullshit. Okay, race is trivial, but leadership is not trivial. This isn't leadership. This is race baiting. How 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 is Joe Biden any different from from David Duke? Okay, how is he any different? 
People who make a big deal out of race do so to divide, and it's about power. They're using it as a fulcrum for a lever to divide people. That's all that they're doing. Yep. Right? Race is trivial. You go out in the bush and you see dead men. You can find black dead men, you can find brown dead men, and you can find white dead men. And when they bleed out, they're all the same fucking color at the end. Okay? There people who make is. a big deal out of race, whether they're Klansmen or they are uh, uh, opportunistic assholes like Sloppy Joe and, and Sloppy Seconds, his vice president, are assholes, okay? Sloppy Seconds. <laughs> I like that. Sleepy Joe and Sloppy Seconds. on her than the Capitol Rotunda, okay? That, that's what the vice president is now. She's Sloppy Seconds. I like that. <laughs> so you guys can go to Niels' website, uh, and it is... His last name, G-R-E-V-I-L-L-I-U-S-P-I.com. And his website is there. Can they get their books from your website or they got to go to Amazon to get them? got to go to Amazon and, you know, just uh, look for Nils Gravelius on Amazon under books and somewhere in there it pops up. You guys found it. Oh, yeah. I had it up just a minute ago. Yeah. There's uh, several books he's got uh, there. You got plans for anything else coming out soon? Well, I've just just that uh, political satire that I've been talking about, uh -huh. and the uh, and the uh, uh, that thing crime novel that I've been chewing on for ten years. I've just been chipping away at it. So, what's and, holding you uh, back? What's holding you back on that one? I can't get the story down right, and I'm not going to put it out there as a shitty book. If you really think about good writing, really good writing can have all the technical elements in the world, but it's not good writing if it's not a series of, of emotional events. Yeah. As much as I, and I never talk about emotion in my books. I don't say, Frank was sad and Sally was hurt. You, you know, I don't use that in my books at all. Um, You've said I talk two. about what people have said and done. You, uh, you've You've said a few things that that tie, for me at least, directly back to Ernest Hemingway. Is he a, a major influence for you? I mean, not only I know to that the in some extent that I don't like him. <laughs> well, that's an interesting. He, he, if you had to pin me down, he's my favorite author of of all time. So, what what the what don't you like about him or his work? Uh, there is a difference for sure. I always found him pretentious, like he was pretending to do what it is that he was writing about. Um, he was entirely too solicitous of Che Guevara and Fidel Castro for me. Um, he gleefully stood by and watched men shot because of who, you know, their their political beliefs and, and ratified it. I, I, I won't have truck with that. Why, why should we why should we treat communists different than Nazis? And when I say Nazis, I don't mean the people that Antifa are calling Nazis, why should we treat Fidel Castro differently than we treated Reinhold Heydrich? Oh, I would say worse. I had no knowledge of that there. Um, so, yeah, that if he hung out with commies, and Shea in, in particular was a, 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 a tremendous monster, you know. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I had, I had no idea of that. Can, the, can, the, can I share something with you? Sure. Absolutely. James Jones 
wrote three seminal novels about the World War II generation that make all the others, even Kurt Vonnegut, pale in comparison. James oh. Jones wrote From Here to Eternity, Some Came Running, and The Thin Red Line. James Jones paid a big price for his service to this country. He was a wolfhound. He was in the 27th United States Infantry in the South Pacific. Uh, James Jones wrote those novels, and Ernest Hemingway was jealous and would offer snide asides in The New Yorker as to his thoughts on James Jones as an author. And when Ernest Hemingway took his own life, somebody got to Jones and asked Jones, so what do you think of, uh, you know, what, what can you say about Ernest? And uh, Jones said, Ernest was always looking for a cock to suck. And by the time he found one that fit properly, it was double barreled, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Holy mackerel. Well, yeah, there's, there's certainly, you know, the Hemingway hero and his own physical infirmities that kept him out of, out of service. And, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in the Hemingway hero for sure. The, the thing that, um, one of my favorite quotes from him, uh, is that all first drafts are shit. And, uh, because of his writing process and how careful it was, um, I, I tell that often to my children and to my employees when they're being hard on themselves for not making it on the first go. And so with your, the thing that I was, one of the things I was keying in on in your description is that you weren't going to finish that book until it was finished. And, uh, that's to be respected. Well, I don't, you know, Brian, it's like this. I always publish the first draft. It just takes me forever to write it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I don't, I, I, the only revision I do is I correct the spelling or I try to, you'll always find a typo or two in my books and I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're so intellectually lazy that you can't suss out what it is that I was saying, maybe you should buy somebody else's book for fuck's sake. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Click, click, you on, go. click, click on necro search. Click on it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Click on necro search. All right. Is this it? Uh, Nothing happened. Click, click, click on it down at the bottom, okay? This one? Yeah, not, not, not there. Down at the bottom. Go to the bottom of the page and click on Necro Search. Okay. There it is. This melancholy task is best left to a professional. Often public agencies are overburdened in protecting city officials or dispersing their rioting constituents. We have resolved many such cases and also have resources to clean up death scenes after the appropriate authorities are notified, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Oh, <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a hairdresser. I'm a detective. Mm -hmm. Very good. So, guys, go check out um, Neil's website. Again, it's uh, G-R-E-V-I-L-L-I-U-S-P-I.com. Uh, especially if you're in need of a necro search, missing persons, conflicts of interest. No, so, don't. so don't. what's a conflict of interest? What does that entail? Oh, well, that would be like if your father's the vice president of the United States and <laughs> he's telling the Ukrainian prosecutor, <laughs> uh, attorney general, to fire the prosecutor because he is interfering with the. Uh, 
uh, your business uh, ventures in Ukraine. That 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 could technically be a a conflict of interest if anybody wants to put a really fine point on it. I, but that's just me. And I, we could hire you to help resolve this conflict of interest. Right, potentially, yeah. <laughs> if I'm willing to take the case and you have enough money. Uh-huh. I mean, certain conditions have to be met. I have a friend in Idaho who builds absolutely superb rifles, but if uh, you know, if all the conditions aren't met, it never happens. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> If, if people bug out on him at the last minute, fuck. Hey, so we want to thank our sponsors, uh, Mission First Tactical. Check them out, missionfirsttactical.com. Seal One. Check them out, sealone.com. Nemo Arms, nemoarms.com. Factory 47. Get your cool AK corner swag. We got our, our dump trays, our T-shirts, our hoodies, uh, all the cool AK corner swag on there. Uh, and is it my understanding that you're an AK um, aficionado as well? I wouldn't own a gun. They're scary. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have I, to have you I, on there. You know, the, I, I, it is my personal opinion that the two great rifles of the 20th century are the M1 Garand mm. and the AK-47. Okay, we got to get you on the AK, the AK corner, definitely. And you got to yeah, introduce Mill. me to uh, your guy Jeff Miller in McMinnville, Tennessee, because he's just down the road from me. So, uh, would love to talk to you that sh- guy. You, you, sh- you should look at look him up. He is uh, he is quite a man. He's a great American, never oh. doubt it. Oh, I did, I did, I did. I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna get in touch with him definitely. Um, yeah, as, as a teaser for when we get Nils on the AK corner, Nils is maybe one of this isn't to disparage him, but probably about. 10, 10 people, I think, have probably taught me the lion's share of what I know about the AKs, the AK, and and Nils occupies a very solid quadrant of, of that map of knowledge, and uh, I cannot wait to reprise uh, some of what I've learned with him, but also get get some deeper dives well, very on nice. uh, some of his passions. So that'll be a really fun if, conversation. If you're we interested, we would love to have you on the AK Corner, Nils. This month's episode, we're going to be discussing Brian. Agit prop. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. might be something that you'd be interested in uh, talking about, Nils. Definitely. Maybe I would. Maybe you would. Maybe you would. We'll find out on the next episode of the Talking Lead AK Corner. Uh, But, guys, thank you again so much for taking the time to be on. Uh, Nils, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Um, I felt like I was listening to this show like it's already been recorded, and I was just soaking up everything. I'm normally normally more talkative than this, but uh, the information that you were – uh, dispelling was was quite entertaining. And I appreciate that, and I know our listeners are going to want to have you back. So thank you. Well, I very much appreciate that. I'm honored that you'd invite me. It is my pleasure to meet you. Uh, any friend of Brian Keeney's is unusual because he has so few. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Touche. Touche. And on that note, leadheads. Until the next episode, as always. Keep your loved ones close and your firearms closer. 